Well, good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that you're here this morning. If you're a first, second time guest, my name is Phil Ortigo, and I serve as a senior pastor here. Those of you who are watching us online, we're glad that you're able to join us live at this moment. Those of you who may be watching us on Facebook later or on our website, we're thankful that you are able to connect with us as we celebrate together and we study God's Word together. Well, I realize that this is the 930 service and how many, how many of you are Carolina Panther fans? How many of you are Carolina Panther fans? Go ahead, just raise your hand, yeah. I know you're, sometimes you can be ashamed of that, but no. <laughs> no, no. Well, well, your Panthers are playing right now on television because they're in London playing a game overseas. So if you have your smartphones and you're watching it, please turn the volume off, okay? <laughs> So, or, or better yet, just, just record it and watch it later, okay? And so, I mean, you, you can watch them get beat now or later. Um, it, it really doesn't matter. Now, I, I realize I live in North Carolina, but I'm from Louisiana, so the Saints are, are my team, and I'm constantly going to pull for them. But we're glad that you're here today, um, and we're, we're going to be doing a couple of things. One thing, we're going to be concluding our series today entitled Everything. But before we jump into that, let me just tag on to what Jeff said about our 40th anniversary. I want to remind you that this is a great time of celebration in the life of our church. I want to encourage you to sign up for that event, join with us. And um, if you're at the 930 hour, such as you are, and if you're not in a connect group, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you come next week and you want to join with us in this, this time of celebration, you don't have to go home and come back. We're going to have a place for you at 11 o'clock in our Crosspoint Center so you can wait until the 11 o'clock service is done and then we can eat lunch together, have a great time. We're going to have some things set up in the Crosspoint Center for you, your family, your kids. But it's a great time for you to say, how can I help? How can I help? Listen, I'm not in a connect group, but I'm in a connect group maybe off campus or in a, I'm in a different kind of connect group that's, that meets maybe with moving toward maturity, whatever it is. I'm free at 11 o'clock to help. And you can see Sherry Nelson, who's in charge of our connection team, and I, I can promise you she will find something for you to do. And we would love for you to join with us in helping us in that service during the 11 o'clock hours. We prepare together to enjoy this time. And please, if you have not signed up, go into that small parking lot when you leave here. We've got folks with iPads. They are ready to sign you up. And I want to encourage you to do that. With technology, it's so easy to do that. Do it today so that way we can have a great time of celebration next week. Now, we're concluding everything today. And we've been in this series called Everything, and we've been looking at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We keep looking at this, and we've been camping out between verses 5 and 7. But in this series, Everything, the whole concept of this series is that for the child of God, we have everything we need for life and godliness. God has given us everything we need to live a godly life now. And he has given us what we need to have a life of success, a life of significance, a life of service. We can go on with a number of other descriptions of that. But we have all we need. And Peter breaks it down by telling us certain things that we have that give us everything. He builds the basis of this in the first four verses. And here's what he tells us. He says, everything we need is found in a person. That's Jesus Christ. We're unapologetic about that at Scotts Hill. And I will tell you that the greatest need of every single human being 
is a relationship with the Son of God. Because it's only in a relationship with Him can I experience the blessings of a loving Father. And so everything we need is found in Jesus. If you're a child of God, you know that to be true. Amen? If you're not a child of God and you're not a follower of Christ, you may be looking for a lot of things to find that one thing that will satisfy everything, but you never will. Only in Christ. And I want to encourage you to pursue a relationship with him. So everything we need is found in a person. Everything we need is formed by God's power. By God's power, he has given us faith. He has given us his Holy Spirit, and he lives within us. And we have the power to accomplish the things that God wants us to accomplish in this life. So we have everything we need in a person, everything we need formed by God's power, and everything we need is secured by his promises. In Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, everything is yes and what? Amen. Everything is yes and amen in Christ. And so here's what we can rest in. I have a Savior who died for me, who brought me into a relationship with a loving Father. I have the Holy Spirit who lives in me, who empowers me to accomplish what God's will is in my life. And I have the promises of God before me that I am absolutely secured in. We have everything, believer, that we need. And then in verse 5, Peter adds, he says, supplement your faith with these things. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at these seven qualities that we are to supplement our faith with. God does one thing. We also have a responsibility of growing in our relationship with him. And these seven qualities are the things that will cause us to grow so we can be fruitful and productive. And here's what he said the seven qualities were. He says, supplement your faith with moral excellence, and to moral excellence with knowledge, and to knowledge with self-control, and self-control endurance, and to endurance godliness. And now he concludes that today, and he moves into the last two qualities that actually are the crescendos of the Christian life. He talks about these two qualities that the Apostle Paul says these Quality is greater than all other gifts that the Father gives us. What is it? It's love. You are to supplement love into your life. And he breaks it down in a couple of ways. Now, no doubt that Peter is thinking about the Lord Jesus. He, he walked with Jesus for three years. He saw the miracles that Jesus did. He heard the teachings of Christ. And the Holy Spirit brings back to his memory, no doubt, what Jesus had to say about love. And Jesus says two things about love. He is, he is confronted by a, an expert of the Mosaic law, what they called lawyers in those days. He was an expert in the law. And this expert asks Jesus, he says, tell me what, are, what is the greatest commandment? Here's how Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments, the, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus brings it down to love. He says, we are to love in two directions. And I want to say something. In the life of the church, we are to have a love that goes in two directions. And this is how you can always tell whether there's a balance in love in your life. 
The first direction, Jesus says, is this, is the vertical. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The most important love relationship in your life is your relationship with your heavenly Father. And that comes through a relationship with Jesus. And so I'm to love him first. You want to know what the problem with the world is? You want to know why nation hates nation? Why people hate people? Why races hate races? You want to know why there are problems in, in our families? There are problems in our culture? Here's the problem. The problem is we not that we need more policy. The problem is not that we need to be more enlightened. The problem is we don't love the true God like we are supposed to. And when I love God the way I'm supposed to love God, then that takes care of all the other issues in life. Why? Because I'm pursuing the vertical. The most important relationship is upward. But then Peter changes it. He's been talking about the vertical all this time. And then when Jesus talks about the second, he not only mentions the vertical, but he mentions the horizontal. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's one thing for me to love God, but the demonstration of my love for God always pours itself out in how I love people. And how I love people. I am to love in the vertical, but I'm to love in the horizontal. It's not enough for me to just pull away in a monastery where I can only love God. But we're called to love people. And when you look at the life of Jesus, that's exactly what he did. In fact, this is a beautiful picture of the cross, is it not? That the Lord Jesus loved the Father. He gave perfect obedience to him. He took on human flesh. He went to the cross and he died. And Jesus loved sinners that he died on the cross for you and me. So he took care of the vertical and the horizontal. And this is what Peter is saying. Peter's been talking to us about loving God. But he ends this section with loving others. And here's how he puts it. He says that we are to add to godliness... Um, um, uh, and godliness, we are to add brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Those are the two things. He says we're to add brotherly affection and we're to add love. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even though these seem to be two separate qualities, they're one quality, and that's love. And what Peter is telling us is we need to love two specific groups. Here's what I want to do the rest of the time. I want us to talk about the two groups that you and I are called to love. And they're in a specific sequence for a specific reason. He says we're to have brotherly affection and we're to have love. What's the difference between the two? Here's the first thing. He breaks them down into two groups we're to love. The first group is this. We are to love fellow believers. We're to love fellow believers. He says, we are to demonstrate brotherly affection. Now, in the English language, that's two words, brotherly affection. In the Greek language, it's one word. And the one word is Philadelphia. That's what it is in the Greek. You know that because we have a city in America called Philadelphia. And the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. Philadelphia is known as the city of what? Brotherly love. And it doesn't look like that too much these days. You know that in Philadelphia, they're the number one high crime rate for a city their size? Do you know that in Philadelphia, every year they make the top 100 most dangerous cities to live in? That's what, they've come a long way from that. 
But the word Philadelphia originally meant a family kind of love. It was a word that was exclusively used to demonstrate a family unit. And in that culture in that day, it was always used to speak of the family. But when you get to the New Testament, oddly enough, Peter uses this word to speak about brothers and sisters loving one another. In that culture, it might have been mildly, much, maybe a mild shock to the people as they read it. Because they're like, whoa, wait a minute, this is supposed to be about family. Well, the Holy Spirit led Peter to choose that word because the body of Christ is family. We are family. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I want you to notice something. We're children of God, but the world has a different take on that. Many times you hear people in the world say, oh, we're all children of God. We're all children of God. And they always refer to all people as children of God. That is not biblical language. The biblical language is this. We're all created in God's image. We're all his creation, but we're not all his children. That's why John writes in John 1.12, he says, But as many as received Jesus, to them has been given the right to be called sons and daughters of God. So we are children of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And many people say, well, if we're children of God, why do we fight? Well, because we're brothers and sisters. We tend to do that. But here's what he's saying here. He's saying that we, as a family of God, are to show brotherly affection to one another. Now, we have to ask two questions. Why is that important? And what does it look like? Here's why it is important. Peter remembered what Jesus said on the night that he was arrested. They meet in a small upper room. They're getting ready to have the Passover, and he's going to institute the Lord's Supper. And it's called Monday Thursday because the word Monday means mandate. Jesus gives to his disciples a new command. And here's what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why did he start with the brotherly affection? Here's why. And basically, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying right here, the greatest demonstration of true discipleship to the world is our genuine love for one another. The greatest demonstration that you and I can give to the world that we are disciples is the way we treat one another. And here's the incredible thing. The world is constantly watching the church. The world wants to see, do you people really love? And when the world is peering into the windows of the church and coming into the front doors and they encounter a church that is divided and is biting each other and, and they're harming each other and they're mistreating each other and they are not living in love, then the world will say, why do I ever want to be a part of something like that? I experienced that on a job. And here's what Jesus gives to the world. This is really crazy. Jesus gives the world the right to judge the church. This is crazy. Jesus never gives the church the right to judge the world. Never. We are to judge each other. 
We are never given the right to judge the world. He is the judge. That is his responsibility. But the world is given the right to judge the church. And they get to judge the church based on how you and I love one another. Francis Schaeffer, who was a great prophet who passed away years ago, who's with the Lord, he's written a number of books, and one of the books he wrote is entitled The Mark of the Christian. Listen to what he says. The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love towards all Christians. That's pretty frightening. Jesus turns to the world and says, I have something to say to you. On the basis of my authority, I give you a right. You may judge whether or not an individual is a Christian on the basis of the love he shows to all Christians. In other words, if people come up to us and cast in our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we have not shown love toward other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative which Jesus gave them. Wow. Why is it important? Because we may have our doctrine right. We may have our theology right. We may have excellent, exuberant worship. We may have a commitment to serve one another. We may go on the mission field. We may have the greatest presentation of the gospel. But if you and I don't love one another, we have given the world the depth of our discipleship. And when you and I don't love one another, it grieves the heart of the Father. And when you and I don't love one another, it negatively impacts our presence in the world. And when you and I do not love one another, neither the Father nor the world wants to be in our presence. That's why it goes first. You see, if we're going to Make an impact. It begins with each other. And if we can't love one another, then the world has no confidence that we will ever care about them. This is where we must grow. As a church, as a whole. Now, what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us something in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 13. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly because I just don't have time to break them all down. But what does it look like for you and me to show brotherly affection to one another? Let me give you what Paul says in Romans. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. He uses the exact phrase that Peter uses. Philadelphia. Love one another with Philadelphia. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Paul mentions about nine things in this passage that are marks of brotherly affection. Let me give those to you by breaking them down into three categories that are manageable for us to understand, okay? Number one, Brotherly love shapes our conduct. When you and I love one another, 
in a brotherly love, as a brother and sister fashion, our conduct will be controlled by our love for one another. What does that look like? I've written four things down. Number one, we learn to put others first. He says outdo one another in showing honor. The word outdo means to, to have preference for others. The word outdo means this. The, here's what, let me just boil it down to this. If you and I are outdoing one another, the only time we are to be competitive in the church is to try to outdo one another by putting others first. The only place where we are to be competitive is for I want to be second in everything. And I want to put you first. That's the picture. And if you and I are living the kind of brotherly love that blesses the heart of the Father and impacts the world, it's not about me. It's about you. And I want to put you first. I want to be second. Now, here's the thing that I've understood. It's one thing for me to choose to be second, but when you put me second place, I don't like that. Because pride gets in the way. Two guys who were at a lunch together, they both ordered the same plate. They ordered flounder. And the plates came, and the, and the waiter just simply put them right in the middle of the table. They were both the same. He didn't matter who got what. So he put them down. One of those flounders was obviously larger than the other flounder. The one man just instantly reached for the bigger fish and started eating it. The other guy looked at him and said, man, that's the most selfish thing I've ever seen. He said, what do you mean? He said, you took the larger fish. He said, what would you have done? He said, I would have taken the smaller fish. He said, why are you upset? Didn't I just accomplish that purpose for you? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That it's okay for us to make the decision to be second, but if you put me second, I don't like it because it's pride. But you know what? When we love one another in a brotherly way, I don't care who goes first. In fact, I want to go second. And if, can you imagine a church that's trying to outdo one another in service to one another? What an incredible place that would be. So one of the marks that we're loving each other in the way is to outdo one another. Secondly is this, we learn to honor one another. Outdo one another by honoring each other. The word honor in the Greek literally means to demonstrate genuine appreciation to what other people have accomplished and what they are doing. When I honor you, I don't try to get ahead of you. When I honor you, I don't compare my gifts to yours. When I honor you, it doesn't matter what your economic, socioeconomic situation is. It doesn't matter what your education level is. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what your job is. You're my brother and sister bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I honor you. That's what it is. Here's the third thing it is. We catch fire for Jesus. He says, do not be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. What does that mean? He says, don't be lazy about the things of God. Be on fire for Jesus. The word fervent means coming to a boil, but it's not a boil that's out of control. It's a boil that is a controlled heat for the purpose of accomplishing the greatest task. It's what a blacksmith does. He heats up the fire. He puts the billows to it, and he keeps it going, and he's controlling the heat, and it's always on fire. Why is that so important? How does that find itself into this list of loving one another? Here it is. When I'm on fire for Jesus, I'll be on fire for you. When I'm on fire for Jesus, 
I'm not only about him, but I'm about you. Because I'm outdoing you by putting you first. I'm honoring you in all things. And when my heart grows cold to Jesus, you, knew who, you know who the beneficiaries of that coldness is? The people around me. It always is. So we keep burning. Somebody told me a long time ago, when a man catches on fire for Jesus, the world will come and watch him burn. And when a church catches on fire for Jesus, the world is so attractive to that fire because of what's happening. We are on fire for Jesus. Here's the fourth thing. We serve Jesus from a common position. He says this, fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. A better translation of that in the Greek is in service to the Lord. How does that mean a common position? The word service literally is the word doulos. The word doulos means a bond slave. A bond slave is a person who has been born into slavery or has been sold into slavery. And the picture is one of slavery. And the only purpose of a slave is to please the master. And in the master's home, there were not levels of slavery. Everybody was on the same level. There were no elite slaves. There were no premium slaves. They were slaves. And Paul's mentioning of this means this, that when we are in service to the Lord, there are no elite Christians. There are not to be people who are premium Christians or uppity Christians. We're all on the same playing field because we have one master and his name is Jesus. And I'm not above you and you're not above me. I might be the pastor of this church. That just simply means I have a different calling than you as my brother and sister. But in Christ, we are all the same. We are all slaves of the king. And whenever I try to position myself as more significant than you, then I raise myself out of the position that I have for my master. We are in this together. And when you and I are walking in brotherly love, it changes the conduct of our lives. What would a church look like if everybody's trying to outdo one another in putting others first? What would a church look like if everybody's honoring one another for the gifts that God has given them? What would a church look like if we're all on fire for Jesus and for one another. What would a church look like if whatever God's called you to is as equally significant to what he's called me to? The conduct of our ministry would be different because it's brotherly love. Here's the second category. I got to go fast. Brotherly love shapes our convictions. See, it not only shapes my conduct, Brotherly love always shapes my convictions. He says there are three things that are going to happen when brotherly love is shaping our convictions. The first thing is we learn to rejoice together. Rejoice in hope. You and I have the same celebration. We have the same joy. We have the same salvation. We have the same security. And not only do we rejoice in one another right now, but it says rejoice in hope, and hope is always talking about the future. You know what we rejoice in? That our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and that we belong together. And one day, we're going to be together in eternity, and right now, we're moving to eternity. 
Life is not cyclical as the world tells us. Life is linear and it's moving to eternity. And every human being is moving on that linear line. And as the children of God, we rejoice in what Jesus has done and what he is doing and where we are heading. There is more joy about seeing Jesus than there is about seeing retirement. Because it's all about him. Here's the second thing we do. We learn to be patient together. He says patient in tribulation. The word patient doesn't mean just putting up with people. It's not like I just put up with you and it's not like you just put up with me. Well, you might. But it's more than that. Patience means this. It is an active, struggling endurance to move past this trial. It's an activity. Patience is an activity. It's something that I do. I purposefully plan. It is for Difficult people and for difficult times. And as a body of Christ, when we're loving one another, we move patiently. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, there are two things every believer needs to do to walk patiently with another. Number one, forbear one another. And number two, forgive one another. If we could walk in that, that would transform our lives. Forbearance has to do with weaknesses and flaws of the human nature. They're not sinful. They're just weaknesses. I forbear with you. I am going to deal with you because you have issues. Turn to the person next to you and say, you have issues. One got up and left. Turn to that person and say, I have greater issues, and it's not you. You see, the thing is, we got to learn to forbear with one another because none of us is perfect. Guess what? Nobody does everything the way you do it. Amen? And they're wrong about it. <laughs> no. Nobody does everything the way you do it. So we forbear with one another, but here's the other thing. We forgive one another. Where forbearance, forbearance is weaknesses and flaws, forgiveness is offenses that are done to me. And you know what I do? I set you free. You owe me nothing. You know what? I know you're just a sinner and you can't help it. But so am I. And Jesus forgave me. How can I not forgive you? I can't think of any more unconscionable sin than refusing to forgive someone when God has forgiven you. It's blindness from the enemy is what it is. And so what do we walk in? We walk forbearing with one another and we forgive one another. That's patience. And as we do that and we demonstrate the kind of love that the Father has for us. Yeah, I love this one. We, love to, we learn to pray together. When you and I are walking in brotherly affection, one of the convictions is we pray together. I pray for you. I pray with you. And I bring you before the Lord. I want to tell you one of the greatest illustrations of your love for me as a pastor is to intercede on my behalf. And bring me before the Father. And one of my greatest demonstrations of love 
And the elders' greatest demonstration of love is what we do every Monday night. We pray for you. We bring you before the Father. And when people are praying together, they don't have time to fight together or with one another. We fight together for the right cause. We're not fighting with one another. So we pray together. And, and, and let, me, let me give you a little thing here. I, and I'm going to be honest here. This is kind of a confession time, okay? I want you to confess with me in this because I'll go ahead and do it too. This sounds like a really big setup. I better not let you down, right? <laughs> Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, will you pray for me? And you said, yeah, I'll pray for you, and you didn't. Come on, I'm honest. Come on. Y'all so spiritual. <laughs> Bunch of sinning slaves. Uh, no, we, we, we all do that. Here's the thing that I've done to combat that. Will you pray for me? Let's pray right now. Right now. Let's pray right now. You know what? I love you enough. And I want to take you to the Father right now. Let's not wait till a more convenient time because I will forget. I promise I will forget. So I'll pray right now. So we pray for one another. Here's the third thing. Brotherly love shapes our concern. I love this. Brotherly love shapes our concern. How does it shape our concern? Paul says two things. We learn to be sensitive to one another's needs. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Here's what it means. It means I've come to know you in a relationship where I know what your needs are. I want to help you physically. I want to help you spiritually. I want to help you emotionally. I want to help you any way that I can. And I can't help you if I don't know you. And you can't help me if you don't know me. So what do we do? We do life together. If you're not in a small group, let me encourage you, get in a small group. It's in these small groups that we do life together, amen? It's in these small groups where we get to pray for one another. We get to uphold one another. We get to pray for the struggles. We pray for our children. We pray for all of these different things. It's in a small group that we do life, and it's in this small group where we are known, and we know, and we can contribute to the needs. Here's the other one. Learn to be hospitable to one another. The word hospitable is an interesting word where we are to take concern for those that we know we are also to love those we don't know. The word hospitable means love strangers. That's what it means. Some of you look pretty strange, so it gives an opportunity for a lot of us. But we love strangers. That's what it is. Now, I want to tell you, we have a great connections team here. Every Sunday morning, they're meeting all over places, and they're greeting people who come in. But they're not to be the only ones who welcome people into the life of the church. Every disciple of Christ should be welcoming people. I want you to know something. I know where you sit. You do so every week. The same place. Some of you say that's your seat. And I've heard some of you tell people you're in my seat. If you ever want to say that, I expect you to buy that seat. And they're $10,000 a piece. Here's my point. You sit in the same place every week, and you know when somebody new comes in. I've never seen them before. I sure hope somebody comes and talks. That connection team, nobody even said hello to them. Oh, they're looking at me. Yeah, it's your job. And so I'm commissioning you to those seats that you like so much. And when people come and sit, in your seat, it's not yours. But it's your responsibility to welcome people 
and love them. See, we don't just love each other. We love those that we don't know. Now, those are the three ways to demonstrate love. Your love, your discipleship to the world is going to be measured in how you love one another. Okay? So we're to love fellow believers. Now, it is 1033. For some of you, you're waiting to see what's happening with the Panthers right now. We're almost done. But for some of you, there is no closure to a sermon if there's an open blank. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, I see the beads of sweat on your forehead even now. Oh, God, I have to watch it online again? No. I'm going to give you the second. We're to love unbelievers. We're to love unbelievers. And brotherly affection with love. Now, let me just say very quickly, here's the difference. Philadelphia is a family love. This word is agape. It's God's love. And God's kind of love is sacrificial. God's kind of love is a love that seeks another person's highest good. That's God's love. And here's what he's saying here. Peter is saying, listen, we're to love like God loves. For God so agape the world that he gave his only son, John 3, 16. How about Romans 5, 8? For God demonstrates his agape to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of agape the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. You love God because God first agaped you. You see, the picture is this. is God's kind of sacrificial love that he shows to sinners. And not one of us ever came into a relationship with him apart from that kind of love shown from him. And so we are to model that love to others. What does it look like? Paul goes on in Romans chapter 12. And he paints the picture of how we are to love those who are not like us. It's one thing for us to love people who are like us. It's another thing for us to love people in spite of the differences. And this is what he says beginning in verse 12. We're not going to break these down. I'm just going to read them to you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, I love this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then he goes on. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. I guess that's just for the avengers. I don't know. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by do so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the picture. When people mistreat you, love them. When people say wrong things about you, love them. When people misrepresent you, love them. When people are not fair to you, love them. Think of Jesus. What did he do? He was mistreated. 
He was misaligned. He was accused to be a sinner and a drunkard. He was even accused to be a partner with Satan. He was falsely sentenced, put on a cross, and died. And some of his last words were not, Father, may your wrath pour out on them. It was, Father, what? Forgive them. Amen. Here's the thing. God has not commissioned the church to judge the world. That's his job. The world is living out of the condition of their hearts. And the heart apart from Christ, according to Jeremiah 17, 9, is deceitful above all things who can know it. Lost people act like lost people. Why are we surprised? We did the same. And instead of us pointing our finger at the culture and pointing our finger at lifestyles and pointing our finger and judging them, the culture's already on its way to hell. What they need as a church is to love them. And while we must first begin by loving one another, the world is watching And when a church does not love one another, the world is turned off. But when the church watches, I mean, the world watches a church that loves one another, there's hope for them because maybe they will care about me. I can't go to that church. I'm a sinner. I can't go over there because of my lifestyle. I can't do that because of the kind of job that I have. And what do we do? We accommodate that in the life of the church. Oh, you can't be here. Oh, you can't do that. Oh, you can't wear that. Oh, you can't act like that. But they don't know how to act. And what they need is somebody who will come alongside and realize I was like that. That was me. I was the guy that came to a Baptist church with a Budweiser t-shirt on sitting on the front row. No clue that I was lost. And that youth pastor, instead of pointing his finger at me, took me aside and poured into my life. And God used him to draw me to himself. That's what the world needs. Let me give you, just in a word, to love like Jesus loved. That means we put away our prejudices. We put away our misconceptions. We put in the forefront of our minds that but for the grace of God, I would be there. And but for the grace of God, he pulled me out of there. That is the crescendo. To love one another. And to let that love so impact those people around me. That I won't agree with their lifestyles. I won't agree with their life choices. But I will agree with this. That without Jesus, they're going to hell. And he's the only one who can change them. The world is judging us. We judge one another. we love. What's a, what's a beautiful picture of that? Let me just close with this. Let me close with this. Donnie, I don't know where you are, but we're not going to do that last song. Okay? 
We might not have to. I saw him pick his head. We're not going to do the last song. Here's what we're going to do. In the news, there's something that has just recently gone viral, and that was with a woman by the name of Amber Geiger, who was a former police officer in Dallas, Texas. She went into work one day and worked a long 12-hour shift, and at the end of the shift, she went to her home, her apartment complex, and she accidentally went into the wrong apartment. Thinking that it was hers, there was a young black man in the apartment. She immediately assumed he was robbing her. She pulled a firearm, without a question, fired two shots and killed him. She went on trial. The young man was Botham Jane. Botham Jean. Botham Jean was from St. Lucia. As a young man, he gave his life to Christ. As a teenager, he was preaching on the streets the gospel. He's 26 years old. He was serving in a church in the Dallas area as the worship leader of his church. Very committed young man to Christ. At the sentencing, she received 10 years of prison sentence for that. Botham's younger brother, Brant, spoke at the sentencing. And here's what he said to Amber Geiger. He said, I want you to know that the one thing that my brother Botham would love to have happen here is that you would surrender your life to Christ. He said, I am not angry with you. I hold nothing against you. And I wish the only best for you. Then he asked the judge, he says, may I hug her? And before he can make it to the opening area, she had gotten up and ran to him and just embraced him. And he's told her, I forgive you, I forgive you. I'm going to pray for you every day. And he's whispering all this. And it looked like the most uncomfortable embrace in a courtroom. The prosecutors were saying, we've never seen anything like this in our entire life. Such incredible forgiveness. And then at the end of that sentencing, the judge herself, Tammy Kemp, who was a district judge, came to her and hugged her. And she says, here's your assignment for the next 10 years while you're in prison. I want you to come to know God and give your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She said, I don't have a Bible. She said, wait a minute. She went to her desk, got her personal Bible. She says, this is my Bible. This is what I use every day, and for decades it's filled with notes and comments. I'm giving it to you. And she opened it to John 3.16. She says, here's where I want you to begin. For God so loved the world. And she closed it, and she gave it to her, and she prayed with her, and they sent her out unbelievable the videos have gone viral of course the, those folks for the separation of church and state are up in arms over this and I don't know why because Micah 6 8 says this to show justice that was done to love mercy that was given and to walk humbly with my God what a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus there was a balance of knowing what truth and justice was. But in the midst of all that, there's this unconditional love. As we move on, we have everything. Listen, everything for life and godliness. Supplement your faith with moral excellence. And to moral excellence, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, endurance. And to endurance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly affection. And brotherly affection, love. For if you do these things, you will not be unfruitful.
provide you a life with Christ. You have it now. Walk in it. And let the crescendo of love be the hallmark with one another and with the world.